So we return to Amos, as we continue on, Amos chapter 3, and reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word given to us as people, give your attention to it, Amos chapter 3, God's word. Amos 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird land in a snare when there is no bait for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on that day, I, on the day that I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. As far as the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So can you read backwards? Now, this is not a book about a book or a letter or a text, but how about providence? Can you read Providence backwards to discover a cause or a reason? For we regularly witness the result, but not who caused it or why. That is, you can walk into the living room and find a wet spot on your carpet, but how did it get there? Well, in many arenas, we can detective our way to the source or the motive. By evidence and logic, we can solve for the missing purpose or author. And yet at other times, it's not so easy. Why cancer? Why a miscarriage? Why a devastating tornado? As we've been going through the book of Job, this has been a central issue. What caused Job's misery? 
and his friends were sure that they could reverse the equation to discover the solution. Well, the book of Job isn't alone in diving into this sticky issue, but Amos also adds his voice to the conversation. And from Amos's logic, we learn more about the surety of God's word to carry out his will in our lives for his glory and our good. So the Lord returns here with sermon number two through Amos. His initial one covered the whole of the first two chapters, and now he has a new one. And he opens by calling his people to focus their ears and pay attention. Excuse me. For when the Lord speaks, it's of the utmost importance that we listen up. What the Lord has to say shapens our lives. It imparts meaning and truth. It determines our destiny. Therefore, we ignore his word at our own peril. Yet the Lord addresses his people Israel here in a special way. He calls them the whole family he brought up from Egypt. They're the only family that the Lord has known among all the families of the globe. Now, to call this entire nation a family highlights their unity and nearness. They're all kin. It also recalls the single family origin, hearkening back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with his 12 sons. Likewise, the Lord reminds them of the Exodus indicative. He redeemed them from the prison house of idolatry. By cleaving the sea and blood-painted doors, the glory of God made Israel his special possession, the apple of his eye of all the earth. Indeed, Israel alone is known by God out of all the families of the world. This is the warm affection and favor of covenantal election. Even though all the tribes of the world are under the Lord, He put his love on only one, Israel. Such is the monogamy of our Lord's covenantal choice. Many were the beautiful ladies, but the Lord chose only one for himself, the not-so-attractive people of Israel. And by mentioning these precious truths, the Lord sets up this sermon For the status of Israel as the covenantal chosen one of God underscores their privilege. It also plays into a widespread sentiment and smugness current among the Israelites of Amos' day. Namely, the current Israelites prided themselves as being God's favorite so that evil could not touch them. Like spoiled kids... They could act however they wanted to, and God would not allow any harm to come to them. Like a trust fund baby, they could get away with murder, but Daddy would never cut them off. They felt immune to the consequences of their action. For God would merely lavish them with his rich blessings, and he did not really care how they lived their lives. This entitlement, as God's people, gave them the liberty to live it up. But as soon as Israel is feeling its privilege stroked here, the Lord drops a punchline. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Their covenantal status 
does not mean that they can live however they want, but it means greater responsibility. With more privileges comes more culpability. Indeed, the covenant recalled here is particularly that of Sinai. The Lord brought them out of Egypt and he swore a covenant with Israel where they had to do the whole law in order to live by the law. The law published the required obedience for blessings and it loudly threatened the grave curses for disobedience. Their covenant selection meant that God cared all the more about their moral behavior. It spelled out the, God's intense wrath and judgment upon them if they were rowdy and rebellious. And so the Lord jolts his people with a wake-up call. Yes, they are the unique covenant partner of the Lord in all the world. But this means that he is even more scrupulous about their obedience. His judgment is that much more severe and certain. Though when someone is complacent, when they're sitting fat and happy in their prosperity, it's not always easy to persuade them to get off the couch. So now our Lord prevails upon them by using some logic. He will reason with his disobedient people. Thus, in verses 3 through 6, by a series of rhetorical questions, the Lord lays out a logical proof. For those of you who enjoyed logic class or enjoy mind teasers, this is right up your alley. For these questions, focus on the relationship between cause and effect, between agent and result, but in reverse. That is, there are some results that if you see or hear, then you know what caused it by necessity. Like a physical law, the effect necessarily flows from the cause. So in each question, Amos puts the effect first. Two people are walking together. If this happens, you know that they met first. Now, whether the meeting was planned or accidental, it matters not. Two people cannot walk beside each other if they haven't bumped into each other beforehand. Same with the lion. Does a lion roar when he has no prey? Of course not. The result of the lion roaring means the king of beasts has nabbed a gazelle. Likewise with the bird. Does it land on a trap if there's no bait in it? The trap will not spring unless the bird triggered it. These results you can see and hear as an empirical reality, and they arise from the necessary and obvious causes. The bait causes the bird to land, the bird trips the stair to spring up, and the juicy meat causes the lion to roar in joyful triumph. This is providence that you can read backwards. When you experience the effect, you know the cause. Yet this little logic game is the Lord's own snare. All these questions have the Israelites agreeing, well, of course, you can't disagree with them. And so then the Lord drops in a parallel question. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, of course, the answer is the same as the previous ones. The result of the city disaster has the necessary cause 
of the Lord's action. Calamity falls upon a city only when the Lord does it. Therefore, the Lord is telling Israel here how to read providence backwards. He wants them to know that some results inherently reveal to us the cause. Particularly, if destruction comes to their cities, they must realize that Yahweh has done it. But why drive home this point? Well, because in their complacency and privilege, the wicked Israelites think that the Lord is only for them and never against them. When some disaster comes, they just chalk it up to time and chance. It was a random accident, for the Lord only blesses us as Israelites. And so the Lord corrects their faulty thinking, No, you dolts. Disaster falls because the Lord caused it. Now, this reading in reverse of providence is one that is more unique to the Mosaic era. This clear logic of going from the result to the cause is not really given to us under common grace. Sure, the Lord does everything, but he doesn't let us go from disaster to judgment so logically. This is made clear as the Lord's next step is to go to prophecy, verse 7. The Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his prophets. This is unique to the Mosaic Covenant. In Moses, the law read providence for Israel. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And so if ruinous curses happened, they knew that the Lord was punishing for their sin. And on top of this, the Lord sent prophets to Israel. He wouldn't execute his covenant justice without first proclaiming it through his prophets to the people. He gave the people a double heads up on the authoritative reading of providence backward, by law and then by the prophets. And this is informative for us in the New Testament. Namely, the only way we can rightly read providence is by special revelation. Without God's authoritative word, law, or prophets, we do not know why God does what he does. Without the word, an earthquake is just an earthquake. Sure, God did it, but why is hidden to us. It takes God's clear word for us to know correctly the Lord's purposes. And where the word does not speak, we should not speculate. In the Old Testament, the Lord gave Israel more clarity on the exact purposes for destroying his people, by the law and by the prophets. In the New Testament, though, we have the apostles alone, which is more sufficient, more than sufficient for our lives, but the apostles don't tell us what God is doing in all the various disasters under the sun. And if we try to impose Old Testament reality on the New Testament, then we commit the error of Job's friends. Yet now that the Lord is combined, but yet now though the Lord combines these two points about causality and prophetic word, verse 8. He says, the Lord has roared, who will not fear? He has forecasted disaster upon the cities of Israel. They cannot but fear. 
also the Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? That is, the Lord spoke to Amos, and he has no choice but to preach. This underscores that Amos' preaching is not a voluntary act. His words come not from him. Amos isn't preaching because he feels like it. Rather, when the Lord reveals his will to his servants, they are compelled to announce. Once God has put his word into the prophet's mind, he cannot keep it to himself. And just as the word forces the prophet to speak, so the spoken word will without a doubt bring to pass the Lord's will. The Lord has roared disaster, so it will certainly fall on Israel so that they cannot but know that it is the Lord's doing. The Israelites' life of wicked ease is coming to an end, and they must know that it's the Lord's judgment for their sins. But now that the Lord has laid out the certainty of his word to affect his punishment, he launches into the specific disaster he's bringing on his wicked people. First, he calls two foreign nations to be witnesses. He summons Ashdod in Egypt to notice the vast oppressions and chaos within Samaria. Now, within the law, it was upon the testimony of two witnesses or more that a charge was proven. So the Lord certifies his judgment here with eyewitness testimony. Moreover, he employs foreigners, which belongs to the Old Testament motif of Worse than the nations. That is, as God's covenant people, we are sinners and saints. We are far from perfect. But in our everyday piety, we should be more upright than immoral pagans. For the church to misbehave worse than the nations is a double condemnation of a deep depravity. Hence, Egypt and Ashdod will look on the depravity of Israel and say, ooh, That's bad. This is like being rebuked by a mafia don. But what are the sins that Yahweh zeroes in on here? Well, he lists off oppressions and moral tumult. He says that Israel does not even know how to do what is right. They're incapable of performing the upright, but they do only evil all the time. Then he states that they store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. That is, they fill up their treasuries with gold and silver obtained by injustice. They get rich by a life of crime and corruption. The crosshairs of judgment fall then upon the sin of greed, the love of money, and the willingness to do anything to get it. They will lie, cheat, and steal for a buck. Money is their trust, their security, insurance, and life of pleasure. And Amos doesn't just limit this criminal greed to certain social classes. This is not merely the rich abusing the poor, though that does happen, but it's everyone does it to each other. All the poor want to be rich, and all the rich want to stay that way. Of course, for this felony, for lusting for money, the Lord will punish in kind. An enemy will come, tear down their defenses, 
and plunder their hordes. Those who plundered will be plundered. Those who robbed will be robbed. And the oppressors will be oppressed. The lovers of money will lose it. And the greedy will become poor. The poetic justice of the Lord will severely repay the wicked people just as they sinned. The hoarders of wealth will become bankrupt to match the bankruptcy of their obedience. And this plundering of Israel will be total, which the Lord vividly picks in verse, uh, vividly depicts in verse 12. Here he gives an analogy and a comparison. A shepherd will chase after a lion that ate one of his lambs, and he will rescue from the lion's mouth a couple of hooves or a piece of an ear. Now, these are worthless scraps that are so pitiful that you can't even feed them to your dog. So why would a shepherd risk his life, the danger, to salvage a sheep ear from a lion? Well, in the law of Exodus 22, a shepherd did this in order to show the owner of the lamb that the lion ate it. And the shepherd was not at fault. These scraps of flesh were evidence of a total loss so that the shepherd didn't have to pay the owner for the loss. Thus, the image here is one of total loss. Hence, the Israelites will be rescued with a piece of a couch and the sliver of a bed. If all you have left of your bed is a partial broken leg, it's pretty useless for sleeping on. A half a torn half or half of a torn throw pillow, this means your couch is gone. Thus this is not a picture of a small saved remnant, but it displays complete loss. The poor are swept away with the rich, the high class perish with the low class. Sure, some were more successful in their wickedness than others, but all were greedy, money-loving hoarders. And all that will be left of Israel will be a bloody earlobe, barely enough for a sparrow to pick at. Thus the Lord finishes off this oracle with another assurance of judgment. The day of punishment is coming, the Lord has spoken, and he will do it. And when he does punish, he will destroy the altars of Bethel. He will hack off the horns of the altar to fall upon the ground. This is a religious judgment for idolatrous worship. It wipes out their pagan shrines and altars and puts an end to their objects of worship. It means mercy is over and only judgment remains. Likewise, the Lord will demolish all their fancy mansions, their winter cabins and summer and spring villas, the ivory palaces and the massive manors will all come down. This further condemns their love of money and their greed for the life of luxury and ease. There, they loved their prosperity and wealth. Their first devotion was to affluence and opulence. And to put to, put to destruction the altars and the mansions, to put this next to each other, means that their greed and idolatry went hand in hand. They worshipped to get rich, 
and they use their money for idolatry, meaning their wickedness and their crimes were rampant. The shrines were flourishing, for they thought that they could pay off God with sacrifices for wealth. And it didn't matter how they lived their moral lives. Their bad theology and perverse wickedness were a pair. No wonder, then, that they were complacent. They sat lazy and satisfied. The churches of Bethel were booming. They had nothing to fear. No harm would come to them. So they thought. God was on their side, and money answers everything. And once again, by this condemning of Israel of old, we are warned in the New Testament, particularly against the sins of the love of money and greed, especially how these sins contribute to idolatry and the perversion of true worship. Remember, coveting is an aspect of idolatry. Now, for sure, Scripture doesn't hold to a simplistic view of money or a shallow perspective on rich and poor. Wealth can be a blessing of God. It is the fruit of wisdom. Poverty can be a punishment or a natural consequence of laziness and foolishness. A person can be upright or a poor person can be upright or wicked, just as a rich person can be either oppressive or generous. The Lord does not give preferential treatment to either the rich or poor based on their net worth. And yet the Lord is clear about the dangers of money and our love of it. Like other Christian liberties, money must be used. But as sinners, we can easily abuse it. As James wrote, the rich in his churches were defrauding others. Their silver and gold were corroded, and they had stored up treasures in the last days by evil deeds. For as Jesus said, you cannot have two masters, God and mammon. In the parable of the sower, the seed sown among the thorns was choked out by the deceitfulness of riches. And Paul reminds us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. We live in a world ruled by the almighty dollar. The lure of luxury teases the covetousness within us. Prosperity is the idol upon the altar of America. And in many churches, this health and wealth gospel packs the pews and looks wildly prosperous. The merging of Christianity and wealth is alive and well today. And it's a temptation that we must ever be on our guard against. It is a wickedness against which the Lord's wrath burns. For those who make an idol out of wealth and multiply evil and reject Christ, there remains for them a great fury on the final day of judgment. And yet, God not only warns us against these sins, But he shows us the better way. Indeed, one of the reasons why we are drawn to money is that it's so effective. Money has a way of getting you out of nearly any problem. It's reliable for insurance and security. 
But money cannot do everything. Namely, it's worthless when it comes to salvation and everlasting life. When it comes to death, money is not worth the paper it's printed upon. Platinum and diamonds have no power to reach heaven. And this is so clearly seen in our redemption. For Christ earned pardon and heaven for us by becoming absolutely poor. Naked and penniless, Jesus died for us. Sure, Jesus possessed the riches of heaven, but he became poor to save us. For the currency of heavenly justice is not dollars or euros, not gems or medals, but it is righteousness. Obedience and loyalty to God is the only valuable accepted by the Lord. Money and wealth has no part of our salvation and life everlasting. But it is founded solely in the passive and active obedience of Christ for us. This is the amazing wonder of our salvation, that the grace of Christ makes it a free gift of God for us. By faith and in Christ alone, the riches of heaven And God's eternal love flows to you. It's through faith, and money is no factor. Moreover, in the gospel, God has spoken. And when the word of God is uttered, it never fails. Thus, as surely as Christ promises to save you, he will do it. For sure, we cannot be complacent or let sin increase. But where the word of Christ gives you, though, the assurance and confidence to know that all who believe in Christ will be preserved through this life and raised up on that last day. Sure, Christ's word doesn't explain why all the odd and painful tragedies of life happen. But Christ's word does comfort us that he works everything for his glory And our true good in him. Therefore may the Lord teach us godliness with contentment. Let us rejoice in the poverty of Christ for our salvation. That he who was rich became poor so that we might be rich in him. A rich that does not perish with this age, but an eternal blessing of life everlasting with him. And then may we rest our faith ever in the sure word and gospel of Christ and in his gospel alone. For as Christ has spoken, he will surely do it because he loved you and he will not lose one that the Father has given him. Amen.